Well, that was the opening music to Blade Runner, the original from 1982. And I have to say the music is definitely one of the best parts of this movie. Uh, but there's so many good parts, we'll have lots to talk about today. And it's directed by Ridley Scott, who clearly is one of our favorite directors. Uh, directed Alien, uh, Black Hawk Down, Spartacus. Gladiator. Oh, yeah, Gladiator, not Spartacus. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> A different movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thelma and Louise. Yep. All kinds of genres. He's, I think he's done a, a movie in every genre that there is. Has he done a Western? I think so. Probably. Think so. Probably. Um, and He's done one of my favorite movies, The Martian. Oh, yeah. I could watch that every week. That's such a great movie. I think, he, I think his favorite genre, though, is science fiction, I, I would guess. Uh, and it stars Harrison Ford, a, a very young-looking Harrison Ford. Uh, Rutger Howard, also quite young and fit in this movie. Uh, Sean Young, who's... I think when we were watching it, I was—I think I called her like the femme fatale of the of the film because this really is almost like a film noir as well as uh, science fiction. Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely. Edward James Olmos, uh, M. Emmett Walsh, Daryl Hannah, uh, William Sanderson, Byron James, Joe Turkle. Boy, he meets a bad end as Doctor Eldon Tyrell. <laughs> In the uh, European version of this film, he they show a lot more of that graphicness w- uh, with the thumbs and the eyes. Oh, well, they showed plenty in the cut yeah. that we watched. We watched the final cut, <laughs> which is sort of like the director's cut yes. with a few additional changes. But it, according to Ridley Scott, it is the definitive edition of the movie, for him anyway. And you're listening to... Yeah, there's seven different versions <laughs> which of Which I've watched all of them multiple times. <laughs> um, and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from sunny, beautiful spring here in North Bend. And this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where we're having the same weather that you're having, Matt. Welcoming everybody back to Blade Runner. It came out, it was released in June of 1982. I went the first, uh, the Saturday that it was it was released on Friday, I think. I went on Saturday to see it. And, uh, wow, it's, it's film noir in the dark city with some of the best production values you could find in a film. I feel like I saw it in the theater, too. Did you take us with you? I would have been, what, 12 years old? Well, I I went to see it when I'd moved to Seattle, and and you and, and Ben and Deborah and Mom were still in uh, Dayton. Oh, right. So you may have gone there, or we may have gone to see it when you came out. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm I don't know. 99% I, I, sure I saw it in the theater, uh, and I, I remember... Uh, like an overwhelming feeling of awe in in kind of that opening shot where we see Los Angeles in at, at night with these uh I don't know like refineries or something blowing out fire from the tops of the chimneys and then you've got these <laughs> yeah. flying cars and the music is playing and you know it, it sets it up really really cool with the uh, you know it sets it up really well with the little uh text at the beginning kind of setting up the world with the replicants and blade runners and you know when the blade runner kills a replicant it's called retirement and 
And I was like, whoa, this is, you know, I was like, I, I just really, really remember that feeling I had when that opening shot came on, though. It's so powerful. You described it well, because that's, that's the theme and feel through the whole movie, I think. I don't think any part of the movie is, has any uh, lightness in it. It's all dark and usually rainy, and, and, uh, and uh, that's why the ending that uh, was attached to it in 1982 seems so out of place because it flashes ahead yeah. to where they're driving out in this beautiful park-like setting, and it, none of that fits the Yeah, I, clear, I, do, I also, yeah, I do, I do remember two, two other things about the movie that kind of stood out to me when I saw it originally in the theater was the... Um, uh, there was the 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 over the the voiceover at the beginning that Harrison Ford had, and and I remember Ridley Scott in an interview saying that he really didn't like that and didn't want it in the movie, but he was sort of pressured into having it because he felt like the, he the other people pro, other people involved in the production felt like it needed more explanation, and then that ending where. You get this uh, overhead shot following the car through like a beautiful green forest, and it was like, wait a minute, there's a there's green forest in this world? Like, uh, you know, there's like the f- everything except for the last like thirty seconds of the film was dark, dank, you know, at night, oh, rain, fog, smog, and then and then there's like they go off to a national park or something at the end. It was so weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It never quite fit. That was jarring when I saw that originally. The um, the rest of the film, though, the uh, the music and the mood, and the uh, the characters are so well developed. I tell you, the the man uh, Ridley Scott is a genius when it comes to making films. It, it uh, is interesting that he's made so yeah, many. Well, yeah, he's made. We've talked about that before. He's just. Yeah, he's a genius with filmmaking and is still making movies. And I think he, he's in his 80s now, right? Or 70s? He's 82. Yeah, 82. He's Gosh, 82. That's amazing. Yeah. I like it when people do that. Like, I think Clint Eastwood is 89. He's still making movies. I'm like, yes, that bodes well for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. take it personally. <laughs> uh, you know, the other thing about uh, Harrison Ford is, is, is the movies that we've seen together, like the Frisco kid oh right uh-huh it's so different from witness and then again so different from patriot games he's done quite a broad spectrum uh of films over his career and he's made uh over 50 films it's amazing i remember really idolizing him as a young like preteen because i you know i saw him obviously in star wars and then I think Indiana Jones came out next, and then and then mm-hmm. Empire Strikes Back, and then Blade Runner, and I was like, "Wow, this!" You know, he was absolutely, without a doubt, my favorite actor at that age, and I still, he's still one of my favorite actors. Um, and he was great because he came back and played the same role in the Blade Runner twenty forty nine movie, and and the way they tied that together was just perfect. I have not. I have to admit, I have not seen that film. It's one that I I need to. Since we're still in sheltered in place, I need to get that one and look at it. Oh yeah, you definitely need to because it it it's just every bit as good as this one. 
uh, in a different way though it's it's not like he it's not like he, he, they tried to remake this one it, it really is sort of like a expansion of the world that they built in this movie uh, which is another the thing other... that I love about this movie is that they did such an amazing job of building out the world like the visuals and the music and the storyline and just everything contributes to you know, building out this complete world that you, is so believable. Like even today, I remember when we were watching it, commenting to Haley and Noah because we, we, the three of us have been watching a lot of movies together. I have to say uh, that the you know the effects <laughs> and everything stand up even today, like thirty odd years later. Um, no, forty, almost forty years later. Uh, yeah, thirty, uh, thirty-eight yeah. years. And they agreed. They they both thought that the effects looked modern and that that's such a feat to me like that's it, it's probably one of the only movies from this time period along with maybe empire that really stand up well today against like modern uh, special effects i would say yeah i think the the uh the, the movie the films that uh get into technology and and space and and all of that have a harder time holding up as compared to a Western, like uh, we recently watched um, uh, the uh, the Sergio Leone movie, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, that's timeless because it takes place in the past, so you don't have to worry about what, the dis- what does this computer screen look like or what does the keyboard look like and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. There was a few, there was a few shots where they had like CRT monitors and, and things, and it, I don't know, it, it almost gives it, I think it's a... Uh, it's become, or maybe this was the first cyberpunk movie where it's almost like an aesthetic, right? It's like, uh, I, 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 I think in anime it shows up and, and in later films as well um, that sort of exist in this cyberpunk kind of genre. Uh, it doesn't bother me that the you know that the technology isn't like what it is today. Even though the movie is set in 2019, obviously you know it, everything that happens in the movie isn't like what happened in 2019. But uh, it it just kind of all contributes to the world. It's like an alternate reality. You know, it's it's like what the world mm-hmm. could have been or could be like in a, in another dimension or something. I uh, I agree with that. I also think that uh, the 2001 Space Odyssey from 1968. When I watch it, I watched it about a week ago. It also holds up well. It has more use of, of special effects and and all of that. But even those don't seem totally out of place for a movie that's uh, 50 years yeah, old. Yeah, the movie 2001 even holds up better in terms of what they show on the screen for technology. I think there's a shot where Bowman is holding a tablet and it looks like an iPad. And, yes, and they have these yes. big screens that were like rear projection screens, but they look like giant, you know, LCD or LED uh, lit monitors, right? So in, in yeah. some ways, I think 2001 is even more prescient about the future than Blade Runner. But the, but I still, I, I don't know, and it's a real close one between those two, but I still find Blade Runner to be a more engaging and like immersive movie experience for me. It's also very spiritual, almost mystical spiritual with the with the with the uh, replicants and the music and and uh, some of the scenes with the replicants 
especially Rudger Howard. Yeah, for sure. Like we definitely should talk about that. So one of the first things that we see on screen is a, is an eye, uh, like the iris and the pupil of the eye, and it's reflecting that that cityscape of L.A. and and I I've always wondered whose eye that was because it 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 happens at a point in the movie where we're being introduced to the world and we haven't met Decker yet, who is um, is Harrison Ford's character. But the next thing that we see is is we're inside one of those giant pyramids, the Tyrell pyramids, and mm-hmm. and um, what's his name is getting tested. Um, Leon Byron oh, Byron uh, James is being tested to see if he's a replicant, and Byron James has blue eyes, and so maybe maybe they were. Byron's eyes or you know or maybe they were the Blade Runner's eyes we, we don't really get to see his eyes very close up but um, I, I always kind of thought it was it was a flash forward that scene with the eye at the beginning was a flash forward to when um, Deckard is going to the pyramids to meet Rachel and and the reason that I think that is that in the in the definitive like in the final cut version and again, we're we're going to talk about spoilers here. We're going to talk about the ending. We're going to talk about theories. So, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, <laughs> definitely go watch it and come back. <laughs> um, but the final cut really makes it clear that you're supposed to at least consider the possibility that Deckard is a replicant. Yes. And, yes. and as we were talking during the show, because we did this as a Netflix party. Um, as part of our virtual film festival, um, we were even saying that later, later on, like a couple decades later, uh, Ridley Scott even confirms that Deckard is supposed to be a replicant, which I, I don't know. I, I think you got to leave it up to the viewer. Like it's not that definitive in the movie. And even though the director says that's what he intended, I still think there's room for debate about it. It takes up a lot of time and space in, in reading about the film. Was he was he human or was he a replicant? Harrison Ford wanted him to be human, uh, but uh, a lot of the other people preferred the ambiguity, like you say, to kind of leave it up to each viewer to reach their own decision about that. Well, I personally think he was a replicant because it, it, there's there's certain things about him that seem a bit more hu- a bit more like the replicants than the humans in the movie. So, for instance. I'm assuming that the Blade Runner at the beginning of the movie was a human. And he, he just got killed, like, almost instantly after, you know, he does this test, <laughs> right? Like, and, but, but Deckard, he, he survives every encounter that he has with the replicants, including, although I have to say Roy Batty kind of spared his life at the end, but, um, but with the other replicants, uh, Rachel, well, not, well, yeah, Rachel is a replicant, but uh, Daryl Hannah's character Pris, uh, Joanna Cassidy's character Zora, uh, Byron James's character Leon. He he survives the encounters with them. Although I don't know, it's it's still it's still I, I mean, yeah, there's no definitive answer in my in my mind about it, but I do prefer the idea that he's a replicant. To uh, take a direct quote for one of the things I read. Uh, and I quote, the film's inherent ambiguity and uncertainty, as well as the textual richness, have permitted multiple interpretations of whether Deckard was a human or a replicant. And I like that about the film. And, you know, I've noticed 
in some of Ridley Scott's films, there is that ambiguity that makes you think about what's going on. Not all of the films, but with some of them. Oh, for sure. He really, he really loves that aspect, I guess, of, of getting that into the film. Well, I think those are my favorite kinds of movies, really. The ones where there's multiple interpretations. And, and we've talked about this before on the show. It's just... Um, this one is re- really stands out in my mind as a, as a perfect example of that. Um, I remember watching it in the theater and coming away feeling like it was a, it was a movie about kind of like good guys and bad guys and the replicants were the bad guys and the, the, the Blade Runners were the, you know, the good guys. And I think that's a pretty typical thing for a 12 year old to maybe come away with from watching the movie. But now watching it, I, I really feel like, um, totally different about it. I, I, I identify way more with the replicants as being basically slaves and rebelling against like the system that enslaved them. And, and now watching it, I'm, I'm like, it's, it's, it's just my heart breaks for them because they just want their freedom, I think, is, is really what they're trying to fight for in the film. And that's so well expressed by Rudger Howard's character. How, how frustrated he is the four of them have come back to Earth knowing that it's highly dangerous to find their creator, to find out if they can't be made to have a more humanistic, longer lifespan, because I believe they were only set up to last for four years. Yeah, they're the latest model. Well, we think that they're the latest model of the Nexus series, which is a series of, they call them robots at the beginning, but really they're more like um, genetically grown humans, right? Like they're, they're, they're no... They're not robots in the sense of like a machine or uh, mechanical. They're they're definitely 100% biologic, uh, but they're but they're grown in a tank or something, and they they yeah. they awake with these memories, which we find out are implanted memories. And there's a really heartbreaking scene where um, Deckard is is confronting Rachel about the fact that she's a replicant. I wanted to see you. So I waited. Let me go. What do I need help for? I don't know why he told you what he did. Talk to him. He wouldn't see me. snuck into an empty building through a basement window you were gonna play doctor he showed you his and when it got to be your turn you chickened and ran remember that you ever tell anybody that your mother tyrell anybody 
You remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched. The egg hatched? And? And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. Implants. Those aren't your memories. They're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's nieces. Okay. Bad joke. I made a bad joke. You're not a replicant. Go home. Okay? No, really. I'm sorry. Go home. She starts to describe a memory, and then he he completes the sentence essentially, um, basically confirming that yeah, those aren't her real memories; those are implants. Yeah, there's a lot of that theme. You know, I was thinking, you've recently watched two versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and the pods and growing the, uh, let's call them replicants. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I I think I think. There's there's aspects of that film that that come through in this film. I don't know if that's intentional or my own thinking about it, but uh, well, I think if you look at it from the human side of things, maybe they're afraid that they're going to be um, replaced by the replicants. That's why they are outlawed on Earth. Yeah, uh, and and actually, the premise of twenty Blade Runner twenty forty nine is is basically that. Like it, 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 they set it up as a as a, almost a war between the replicants and the humans for the future of humanity, essentially. I'm going to have to watch that for sure. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we saw that ambiguity in the movie that we just viewed together in our Netflix party, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, as Charles Bronson rides away with uh, Jason Robards, who's died. And it's, it's like, why is he leaving? What happens? Where's he going? I, you know, that's a version of that ambiguity at the end of films that I enjoy. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that movie because I, I think there's a <laughs> there's one scene in that movie which we can we'll definitely get into in the next episode, but where he gets shot at the beginning. I think that's really really crucial to the entire rest of the movie because as I was watching the movie, um, it almost felt like he was an avenging angel or like an avenging spirit. And the fact that he got shot at the beginning lets you know that, no, he's human. But, you know, the whole time I was watching that movie, I was thinking of, of science fiction movies and how much influence they've had from Westerns. And in, Oh, absolutely. And in some yes. ways, this is, this is influenced by Westerns. Like, uh, Deckard is sort of like that lone gunman that comes into town and like cleans up the town yeah and you know you think about like yep. the sergio leone movies with clint eastwood and it's a very similar sort of character very few words you know uses actions to uh get done what he needs to get done and 
Yeah, so this this movie captures so many different elements of, of other genres like westerns, film noir. It it defined a new genre. I think a lot of people would say that that it defined the the cyberpunk genre. And it, so it's, it's just so much to talk about. It's going to be hard to cover all the bases. Have you read the book that this is based on? Do androids dream of electric shit? Honestly, I tried to read it, and I, maybe I'll give it another go, but I, I find his writing difficult to get into. Um, I know that there's some similarities between the book and the movie, but I, I would say that, from my understanding, the movie uses the book as a launching point, but it's it's quite different in the details. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, well, the, the premise is that it's in the future, and uh, four replicants have come back to Earth against all of the laws that exist to keep them off Earth because they want to find their creator. They jumped the shuttle off world, killed the crew and passengers. We found the shuttle drifting off the coast two weeks ago, so we know they're around. Embarrassing. No, sir, not embarrassing, because no one's ever going to find out they're down here. Because you're going to spot them and you're going to air them out. I don't work here anymore. Give it to Holden. He's good. I did. He can breathe okay as long as nobody unplugs him. It's not good enough. Not good as you. I need you, Dex. This is a bad one. The worst yet. I need the old Blade Runner. I need your magic. It was quit when I come in here, Brian. Now. Stop right where you are. You know the score, pal. You're not cops, you're little people. No choice, huh? No choice, pal. Deckard is a Blade Runner who's basically uh, like he has a license to kill, like in a 007 movie. And he proceeds to begin to hunt them down. And some of the scenes where he's encountering them is, are amazing. I was, I, I was really enjoying when he meets up with Joanna Cassidy's character. <laughs> yeah. And he plays that inspector. Uh, he's a, he's a hole-in-the-wall inspector. <laughs> yes. Right. But she's on to him pretty quickly. Well, I think she's on to him, like, instantly, really. <laughs> so there's a lot of that and uh you know it's hard it's hard to for me just to sort out the plot because there's so much going on with the production and the the, the feel of it the visceral feel of the film and the music oh my gosh the music it's everything about it is a plus it's a score of a lifetime for Vangelis, i think i mean and he's done other ones like um the the running movie uh chariots of fire that was a that was yes. a beautiful score, and and you know obviously he's gone on to do many many more films and albums and and whatnot. But and he's a musical genius. But the that particular music with this film, I, I can't imagine the film without this music. It's it's just the two of them are just so tightly connected to me. I'm maintaining four thousand.
and it and it really points out like the importance of the music to the film and and we can talk about this some more next episode because the music in once upon a time in the west is also com- totally you know it's just integral oh, to the, the drama yeah. i was telling you before we started the podcast i i can't get that music out of my head yeah from once upon a time in the west so it's so haunting. beautiful but the well, it, I think it's important that we set this up a little bit with the fact that Decker doesn't want to come back. Like somehow he's either told uh, Emmett Walsh's character Bryant that he doesn't want to be a Blade Runner anymore, or that he's done with this and he's retired. Uh, but then he he gets summoned essentially by Edward James Almos's character Gaff. Uh, to come back and meet with Bryant. And so they have this kind of like talk in Bryant's office. And, and I, I remember, again, another really clear memory I have of watching it in the theaters when the camera pans down, like in the police station and pans down through the ceiling into Bryant's office. You see on top of Bryant's office just tons of like dust and like, trash and it, it's just so dirty looking and so realistic looking and then you you come into uh, brian's office and it's it's got all this like old-fashioned technology he's wearing like an old-fashioned wristwatch and he's got this lamp with these uh glass panes that have pictures on them and there's like leather in there and it, it just feels like very nostalgic to a past that doesn't exist anymore in this world that they're in because up until that point, all we've seen is like this high tech sort of like dystopian world of Los Angeles in 2019. Um, so I think Brian is sort of a he's 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 a nostalgic person who's wishing that he could live in the past in some ways. I agree with that. Uh, I was reading about uh, just some of the I can't get past some of the production stuff. They built their own town on the Warner Brothers lot. Yeah for filming called it Ridleyville they took some of the standing buildings there and they put all these like pipes and conduits and stuff on the (laughs) outside to make it look (laughs) like uh you know some something that you'd never seen before and it, it really does work it's it's so effective so so Deckard uh agrees that he you know he'll do this job so now it's turning into like a detective movie almost he's got to go find these replicants so now we get, now this is where we meet Rachel. Um, so the first stop that he makes is a trip to Tyrell Corporation, where he meets Tyrell, played by Joe Turkle. Yeah, he's perfect for this role. <laughs> he's so yes. I don't know, like I liked his glasses. Yeah, he's he's ominous. He's he's ominous in the movie. He he's he, you can tell he's a genius, but he's also like not quite human himself. It feels like. Do you like our owl? It's artificial? Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. I'm Rachel. Deckard. It seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit, it's not my problem. May I ask you a personal question? Sure.
Have you ever retired a human by mistake? No. But in your position, that is a risk. Is this to be an empathy test? Capillary dilation of so-called blush response? Fluctuation of the pupil? Involuntary dilation of the iris? We call it Voight-Kampff for short. Mr. Decker, Dr. Eldon Terrell. Demonstrate it. I want to see it work. Where's the subject? I want to see it work on a person. I want to see a negative before I provide you with a positive. What's that going to prove? Indulge me. On you? Try her. It's too bright in here. But that scene in the in the in the the pyramid where the sun is setting, it's probably I think the only time we see the sun in the movie. But it's very low on the horizon, and it's the background is all gold, and then you've got this reflecting water kind of effect on the walls. And I I just think that's one of the most beautiful things that's ever been in film. That that whole scene with Rachel. It it's it's a beautiful setup. It is. Yeah, I'm the first replicant that he encounters is. Leon, right? So they go to Leon's apartment and they find uh, a scale and some photographs. And then we cut to a scene with Rutger Hauer and Leon and they're trying to get to their maker, essentially. And they meet that guy that's in the, uh, the, the cryogenic lab where he's growing eyes. And they find the light. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of Ork. Come then, Daka. You not come here. Illegal. Hey! Hey! Sabakalda! Cold! Those are my eyes! Freezing! Yes. Questions. Morphology, longevity, incept dates. Don't know. I, I don't know such stuff. I just do eyes. Just eyes. Genetic design. Just eyes. You Nexus, huh? I design your eyes. Chu. If only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. Questions. I don't know answers. Who does? Tyro. He, he knows everything. Tyrell Corporation? He's big boss. 
big genius. He, he designed your mind, your brain. Huh? Yeah. Smart. Not an easy man to see. Can be caught. I guess. Sebastian, he, he take take you there. He take you there. Sebastian, who? Jay, Jay Yes. And uh, Roger Howard's <laughs> yeah. character, Roy Batty, says, if only you've seen the things that I've seen with your eyes. It has such a great line. <laughs> it is. And so they, so those two get some information to progress their storyline so that they uh, learn about the toy maker, who is played by William Sanderson, J.F. JF Sebastian. So they learn about J.F. Sebastian, and he, he, his nickname is the toy maker. Uh, and then we he had some very fun toys in his apartment too yeah well they were basically like biomechanical creatures yeah but then we cut back to a scene uh where uh rachel confronts deckard at his apartment and and she can't believe that she's a replicant and he this is that scene where basically deckard confirms that she is a replicant because he knows her memories. How could he know her memories if 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 she wasn't a replicant? Um, I I find that scene heartbreaking every time because just imagine that you're you th- you think you're just a human being, like you have all these memories and experiences, and and one day somebody shows up and basically tells you, no, you're you were engineered, and everything that you know, know. about yourself is just made up. I think that would just be devastating when i watch the film i'm i'm thinking to myself when is this actually going to come about you know at the advance at the advancement of artificial intelligence and all where when will that happen and i'm getting to think you know as we enter space travel we may want to use replicants this you know it's like this was foreshadowing some of that in my own imagination. Well, and that's you know, I think that's why they did develop these replicants is so that they could do these those dangerous yeah. jobs off-world and uh, withstand the radiation and the rigors of of space travel. But it, yeah, it brings up a whole like slew of questions about what what does it mean to be human and is can you can you engineer something that's essentially human and then enslave them like that? I, you know, it's like well, no, I don't think. I don't think you can because they have a spirit. They have like their own, clearly in the movie, they have their own desires and their own drive to, to find, you know, their truth. Um, that's the whole premise of why the replicants came back to earth. And then we, and then the next scene is uh, when he does that uh, scan of the photograph. And then he, he keeps zooming further and further and further into the photograph. I know. <laughs> that's so cool. That, that was pretty really high well tech. Today. It does. It does indeed. That probably took half a day or a day to do. Yeah, but he at that time he uh, 
has now a photograph of one of the other replicants uh, and and uh, some more information in, in, as far as where he's going to go next. So the storyline is progressing for him. And then we cut to a, a scene where Daryl Hannah's character is kind of very sneakily introducing herself to uh, J.F. Sebastian and getting in with him you know and 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 the way she does that is great she pretends that she's homeless and that she's hungry and 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 jf sebastian basically brings her up to his apartment and we learn more about how he's got these creatures that he's designed and that he's helped tyrell design the the replicants Got your bag. I'm lost. Don't worry, I won't hurt you. What's your name? Chris. Mine's J.F. Sebastian. Hi. Hi. Oh, where were you going? Home? I don't have one. We scared each other pretty good, didn't we? We sure did. <laughs> I'm hungry, Jaya. I got stuff inside. You want to come in? I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> Daryl Hannah in this movie is, is is brilliant. She's so she's so great. I think this was her first. She really is. Was this her first big screen movie? I, I kind of I think it was. It was near, I don't have that in front of me, but I, it was close to the beginning. Or maybe her first, like, real know. hit. Although this movie didn't do, like, it wasn't like a super successful movie when it first came out in the theater. No, I was surprised by that when I was reading on the uh, internet about some of the revenues and all. It's not like some so many of his later films, like The Martian, which is just made tens and tens of millions of dollars she did a couple other films before this but this was definitely her first like big hollywood production that that building that jf sebastian lives in though you you said that that was a real building in los angeles it is they they dressed the bradbury building in downtown los angeles uh, and turned it into a filming location where Sebastian had his apartment and then made it look like it was a derelict, semi-abandoned place. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous building. It's, it's on the same theme as the Pioneer Building there in downtown Seattle, but on a grander scale. Boy, they really made it look like J.F. Sebastian was the only was, one living there. <laughs> I know. That's another cool thing. Him and the rats. That's another cool thing about this world is that, that Los Angeles... 
in some ways is kind of deserted because everybody's gone off world. So there's there's a lot of scenes where there's a lot of crowds, but then there's also scenes where it's just you barely see anybody at all. And a lot of empty, derelict-feeling buildings. And and it, it's made even more that way, the feel of that, because it's dark and it's often rainy, and they're kind of crumbling. The buildings are kind of crumbling. And then we get the scene that was cut from the theatrical release, which... Um is when Deckard is back at his apartment and he's kind of just pushing keys on the on the piano and then he kind of daydreams about a uh, unicorn yeah and yeah so that that's a like really critical scene if you think that Deckard is a replicant because it's something that's in his head right it's a it's a it's a daydream that he's having thinking about the unicorn very specific kind of image that scene where um, him and Sean Young's character Rachel are going to make a run for it but then they look down at the ground and they see that there's a uh, little unicorn uh, folded paper uh, origami and it's in the shape Uh of a unicorn and why would it be in the shape of a unicorn well I think it's because that uh Gaff knows that Deckard is a replicant and that it's the same kind of it's a callback to the thing earlier with Rachel where Deckard knows about Rachel's memories and I think Gaff knows about uh, Deckard's memories well it adds to the ambiguity doesn't it hi this is Matt and Bob and I ended up talking for another 45 minutes about this movie and we actually ran out of time on the first day that we had scheduled for recording, so we picked it back up a couple days later. And so that will be part B, or part two of this review, which will come out in the next day or two. And so we'll be back with more on Blade Runner 1982.